Welcome to Now We Listen, a podcast celebrating traditionally underrepresented performers, scholars, and research topics in early music and historically informed performance. I'm Thomas Carroll. Now We Listen is curated and produced by members of EMA's IDEA Task Force. It is the only early music podcast written and hosted by diverse individuals in the historically informed performance community. One further aim of the podcast is to highlight performances or texts that seek to deconstruct cultural and personal biases within a wide range of communities. In today's episode, Female Representation and Entrepreneurship in Education, we will have the pleasure to talk to Costa Rican Baroque bassoonist and arts entrepreneur Catalina Klein about creating spaces for hopeful resistance in educational projects and supporting female empowerment while referring to essays from the book edited by Wayne Wu, Rethinking Multicultural Education, Teaching for Racial and Cultural Justice. Catalina, welcome. We are very glad to have you here with us today. Welcome to Now We Listen. Many thanks for this invitation. Thank you. Before we get into the the meat of the interview, can we just have a brief history of your musical background? Yes, sure. So, well, I have diplomas from the Juilliard School, the University of Montreal, and the University of Costa Rica. However, my musical background is mostly sustained by the several music festivals I did in the past. Music festivals in Latin America mostly, but also in Europe, Canada, and the United States. Those events made me who I am as a musician. Those events helped me to grow, to connect with others, to compare myself, to better understand many things I didn't know before. (laughs) So I do have a strong influence from the Brazilian musical scene as I lived in Brazil for 10 years. So yes, I have three academic pillars that you can say Costa Rica, Montreal, New York. But Brazil, when I was in Brazil, um, opened a different musical doors. It was the Brazilian experience that helped me to understand who I was as a musician and how I could dream about my future. So Brazil is a country where I, I am able to be myself and diversity is everywhere. So my musical background is kind of a mix of formal academia, but also the music festival experience provided me with something more than just knowledge, I guess. Do you find that the music festival experience provides a better sort of educational experience in Latin America for people who want to start doing early music? Yes, I think it's the best solution. For, for our people is effective. If we do it right, as it should be, then our people will get the information they need. And so they will do something about it because we always do something about it. So it is effective because right now, universities are, I believe they're still behind. So we dream about universities, all universities in Latin America that will have eventually a department for early music, all, all universities, right? Right now is not the case. So music festivals are a great solution, even if it is 15 days, 10 days, five days, doesn't matter. If we bring the information and the right people to connect, then knowledge is gonna grow as fast as we need. Yeah, that's that's really great. So when you came to the, the Juilliard program, how did your experience working in 
festivals and as an educator previously inform how you thought about the Juilliard education, which is much more conservatory trained, connected to a large institution? Well, the Juilliard experience for me was different than for most of my colleagues because immediately I said, don't send me to any tour. So in this program, they offer you a lot of tours in many different places. I didn't want it that because New York was already a tour for me. I really wanted to understand how North Americans understand early music or how they, they conceive the interpretation of Baroque from the French or from the German perspective, or, but is their perspective of that. I wanted to learn that in New York. So I, I enjoy it pretty much. I enjoy it pretty much, but it's different from the real world, totally different. That's, that's for sure. But I learned, I learned many, many, many things from my mentors and from my colleagues. And I was very happy to be part of the program, yes. One of the things about a lot of these early music programs in the United States that are connected to, to major either universities or institutions is that a lot of times the educational philosophy is kind of tied to what that institution in general tries to think of as, as their own style of educational philosophy. And I think in a festival situation where you have maybe a shorter span of time, but you can work really intensely with a lot of students who are there specifically because they really want to learn and they want to experiment with this, you can sort of tailor the educational experience, which really helps a lot. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. Going to uh, rethinking multicultural education, uh, teaching for racial and cultural justice. One of the ideas presented is this creation of spaces for hopeful resistance in educational projects by the active recognition and celebration of representation and anti-racist approaches. As a recent graduate, how did you see your role as a student in this kind of a higher education program? Did you feel like you were allowed to create this space of hopeful resistance within this very set curricula? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I believe I had an important role in the last music program I completed last year in New York. I think I was the third or the fourth Latin American that completed the historical performance program at the Juilliard School. But it is never a good thing to say that you were the first or the third or even the fifth person to achieve something like that. Because we are kind of the 21st century. It's like a bad thing to say something like that. It will show that there is actually a lack of diversity in the first place. So when I say I don't feel like I was special, I feel like, oops, why is that I'm the only one Latin American, right? So I shouldn't have to ask myself every morning why that nobody looks like me in the program. I shouldn't, right? But yes, I was allowed to be myself inside the program. I had excellent mentors, the same in Montreal. It was nice to realize that I was making some kind of a difference, but I don't feel I was allowed to create a space of hopefully resistance, not at Julia, not in Montreal. No one can do that alone. We need more people. So quite the contrary, a person like me, I adapted, I obey my mentors. I did not demanded many changes. You see, most of the time I make people laugh about stuff. So like a good bassoon player. <laughs> <laughs> so I was mostly absorbing information, right? From the program, 
And I did measure it every word to these people around me because every time I try to be myself, some controversy will come after that. And that was not good for the equilibrium of the context. So yes, don't take me wrong. I had very good colleagues, great mentors. I was happy every time I became a student again. I do believe I have a role now after finishing the programs. I now is now after finishing the programs, I can move people around me, people that looks like me, because basically my message is if I did it, anyone can do it. I'm not special. We just need to go for it if you want to go for it. And I wanted to go for it. So in every program we enroll and I enroll, we need to ask to ourselves every time, are we changing for the best? Are we just absorbing information? Are we learning precious information? Are we really connecting with new talents? Uh, what I'm doing after the program? So basically, I, if I was discovering myself every time and I was doing that, I was happy. But that's totally different from the real educational transformation we want to see. Yeah, I think that there's a real there's a real big difference there. And I definitely empathize with the feeling that you shouldn't be the first or the third or even the fifth person to go through such a program. We're well into the 21st century right now. This should be a normal occurrence. Yeah. And of course, part of this goes back to this idea of equity in opportunity. So many people just aren't given the chance to experience music this way, or given the opportunity to play on historical instruments and sort of feel what it's like to touch a harpsichord for the first time, or to pick up a Baroque bassoon or a traverso or a Baroque bow for their violin for the first time. Oh yes. That's not just something to do with socioeconomic status or with cultural background or with race, but it also, of course, has to do with the fact that in so many of the major institutions, what we do as historical performers is still seen as something on the fringe and something that a lot of schools aren't necessarily willing to devote resources to. Yes. And I think in that way also, as historical performance specialists, all of us, regardless of our background, we've all kind of felt at some point in time like we were the only one in our young, the young parts of our, our program training uh, doing this. I know that I certainly did when I was experimenting with uh, putting early clarinets together and repairing them in my dorm room at Oberlin when I was 17 years old. Um, I certainly never thought that that would then lead to a career where I'm traveling around the world doing this professionally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I, I very much understand also how it feels to be a person of color or from a different background going into one of these programs where how you look and how you act is maybe not the norm for the type of people that, that usually go into these programs. Correct. And you kind of go through these programs feeling almost like a fish out of water at first until you find your own footing. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, a lot of universities and institutions are more than happy to put our faces on brochures or on concert programs to highlight how diverse they are right. while still trying to recruit a primarily white student base, either 
by design or just because that's the pool of applicants who tend to show up to these programs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's a very, it's a very interesting position to be in. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The articles in Rethinking Multicultural Education not only challenge educators to confront topics of this power and privilege dynamic in classrooms, uh, which can certainly be applied to music classrooms, but also provides examples of the ways in which uh, social justice-oriented multicultural education can be employed in various circumstances, both in the classroom and out of the classroom. You personally, your commitment to social justice-oriented music education is evident from all of the festivals that you've had a hand in starting and setting up um, and the many projects that, that you currently lead. Could you share with our listeners the, the mission behind the FEMUS uh, Festival in Brazil, uh, the one that you manage along with your husband, oboist Alex Klein? Oh, yes, sure. So FEMUS is a festival in South Brazil that is committed to empower people from Latin America. Brazil is a place, as I said before, rich in diversity. Each state in Brazil is like a different country. So the festival attracts people from the whole region, but also from the other countries around, like Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, Peru, Colombia, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Honduras, Bolivia, Chile. Every now and then we have people coming from Canada, Australia, Asia, but it is mostly people from Latin America. So it is a place that opens the door for real exchange from my point of view, diversity and real social interaction. You see mostly social interaction. That's what I, well, that's what we like actually. Music is like the excuse some of the time, but with the social interaction is very important. So during 15 days, we try to bring excellence and experiences that will empower young musicians and it does work. We know that it does work. So we have programs for children, for beginners, for advanced, for professional. And most important, it is accessible. It is affordable. You see, sometimes, as you were saying also, we debate about racial disparities, but we must not forget the economical discrimination. It is very expensive to participate in any festivals in Canada and in the US. Femusk is accessible and create ways to help people from different economical situations to achieve their own potential. So we bring excellence to students that normally could not afford to pay high quality education. And we empower them to dream, not about studying somewhere on a big institution, but about recognizing their own talent in this one event so they can go back to their homes happy and they can just dream about repeating the experience somehow. So they can just maybe create a new festival, have ideas, do something else with this information. So they will be happy, energized with this information, and they will be able to just imagine new projects in Latin America, right? So the purpose of the festival is to help the students to find their own potential and to define their own cultural identity. It is only when we recognize our own cultural identity that we become able to help others to do the same. So basically, you need to know, you need to understand who you are, where you come from, and what you are capable of. So to reinforce the cultural identity of a person is our goal, because this is the real revolution from our point of view. So this is famous for us. This is what we want to offer to the students. Remember who you are, where you come from, 
and what we are capable of with the information we are providing. I also love that the scope of the programs that you offer at the festival range from Brazilian popular music all the way up through now historical performance. And you're really letting students experiment with as many different types of music as they can they can take in in those two weeks, especially when there hasn't really been as much general exposure to historical performance. And for a lot of these students, this is probably their first time touching these instruments or thinking about music in this way. Oh, they have the instruments. Many of them, they have the instruments, but they cannot play with anybody sometimes, but they don't have, and they're already professional. So the early music program is a revolution itself because it provides the opportunity to, okay, let's just do, let's just play, let's just see the condition of the instrument, let's see if you can make it better, let's bring people that can help. So yes, this is, this is for me the best way we can change, do something about it. And then after the festival, are there ensembles uh, in Brazil and in Latin America that are starting to put an emphasis on historical performance as like their main focus? Well, there are other festivals in Brazil, right? Oficina mm -hmm. de Musica provides many years of the early music program. I participate twice. It is a great program. And FEMUSC is like, the, we did the first edition last year. It was a complete success. So people, they're just waiting for the second edition by now. But it will happen at the same time as the popular program. Uh, it will happen at the same time as the modern edition. So it's going to be really, really diverse. <laughs> we will have a mix of people uh, moving around and we will just have to smile to each other and just be happy with, with all the exchange we will have at the same time. We need this exchange. We need the modern clarinet teacher to listen to the classical clarinet, the real classical clarinet, right? So we need that exchange because this is the way we will change things for the best uh, in the academia eventually. Right. I mean, you mentioned the, you know, a modern clarinetist, for example, listening to to a period clarinetist. Are modern students in conservatory programs or in pre-professional training programs generally open to trying a historical, let's say, oboe or bassoon for the first time? I think they need to listen. Mm -hmm. When they listen to this experience and they feel it, the first time I heard this, it was like magic for my ears, you know? so they need just to have the experience to listen. And yes, curiosity is, up, is always there. So they will, they're all curious about it. It's so new. And at the same time, it should be like a must. We need to play this instrument so we will understand the repertoire and the language better. Mm -hmm. So we hope, we hope this is the opportunity to listen and to experience, oh yes, curiosity is going to be there for sure because it's, it's, it's knowledge moving, moving and non-stop, non, non yeah. And because the festival uh, attracts such a wide range of students from all over Latin America, is there funding in place to ensure that any student who wants to go to the festival can? Is Are, are there financial aid packages to, to allow students to come? Yes. Yes, we have packages, but the festival is already not expensive. It's already affordable for them. I don't have the, the numbers here, but if you, go, if you go to the website, it's just affordable. And for somebody coming from Canada or the US, it's, it's also very affordable. So it's a, a very nice experience for anybody that wants to feel the 
real diversity in social experience about, you know, it's, it's just great. So when we find people uh, that audition for the festival and they really need support, we are there for them. Oh, yes. We hear to every audition, to every person, and they, they need to fill some documents, right, on the auditions. And then each, each person is, is specific. Each situation is specific. Mm-hmm. We help people. We have been helping uh, many, many years now. What the early music editions brand new, right? So we will have the second one. That's one of the issues that's always struck me as a little bit hard uh, to reconcile with in the United States and with, with a lot of festivals where either you have to pay to attend the festival or you have to pay to audition or you have to pay your own travel or the festival might be free, but you have to pay your own housing and you end up spending thousands of dollars over the course of a month or two months while you're at a festival um, just to be able to live there so you can go and study with the teacher. And that, of course, also speaks to economic disparity in who is allowed to become Mm -hmm. a professional musician because there's so many people who just can't afford to give up their entire summer job or their entire income that they might make from teaching over the course of a summer uh, to go to a festival to work on their own playing. Mm -hmm. And now that Zoom and teaching over Zoom is becoming much more of a commonplace thing in our world uh, post-pandemic, and a lot of institutions, thankfully, are continuing with Zoom lessons people who can't necessarily teach in person. Now there is this opportunity for people who teach over the summer to try to schedule their students in over Zoom while they're attending these festivals. But that still makes it very difficult for people who might be working a full-time job over the summer just so they can afford the next semester's tuition of school. Yeah, no, for me, every time I went, I participate, I did all of them all the festivals in the US, in Canada. I had to plan, I have to be prepared because it is expensive. And it is a great experience. Every festival I, I made. But if you go to Europe, it's not that expensive. I did festivals in Europe um, for a number of years. They were completely free. Mm-hmm. And they even paid for my plane ticket from the U.S. Uh, <laughs> to to fly yeah. to Europe. Um, so those kind of festivals, I I highly encourage. Uh-huh. Yeah. But it, it's festivals in the U.S. where you have to pay tuition, or you're expected to front the cost of your own travel and your own housing uh, when you get there, and that becomes incredibly expensive for students who frankly, just don't have the money to do it a lot of the time and are racking up enormous amounts of tuition, student loan debt, just to go to school during the regular school year. Yes, yes, it's very difficult. So yes, so we, what we try to do is just, let's make this affordable for everybody. And we do listen to every audition so we can realize what oh, this talent is this. So it will have this place in the festival. And so we offer to this talent a special place. So it's, it's very specific. And we take care about every student. And sometimes we cry on auditions because you see people recording themselves in, in the bathroom, <laughs> in many unexpected places. And we just care about their talent, 
not about their economical situation. And when they come with us asking for help, then we help. We try to help them all the time. Yeah, yeah. Because Brazil is a is a big country, so we will have a person from from Natal from Recife. They need to fly to the, the south Brazil. That's expensive. It's, it, inside the territories are very expensive to fly. So we try to, to provide the best we can that is always a specific. We go person, a student by student, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's really the best, the best way to do it. There's so many institutions or festivals that just try to fill numbers. They say, okay, so we're programming a pieces this year that ha- need this many wind players or there have to be this many bassoonists in the studio to, to mm-hmm. fill a full load for, for the professor. And everyone sort of comes down to being a number in the audition room. But I think... Yeah, that's not the case here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes the audition, they, they don't complete the whole audition, but we can see they want to come. So we contact them immediately to see what's going on. Yeah. And sometimes they have problems with their families. And sometimes they have personal issues. Sometimes it is about money. And so, but we go and ask. And so we care about them. If, if they started to complete this, then we go after them one by one. Yes, we care about them. Yeah, and I think that's really admirable. Um, your, your work uh, and your husband's work at the festival really shows that the teaching and learning in this way can be great vehicles for promoting diversity and equity and social justice across a wide range of, of countries in Latin America. Mm-hmm. You're now turning to, to uh, North America and to where, where you currently are based. You, you are also uh, leading a music teaching initiative in Calgary for children. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, yes. Uh, so I love teaching children and young mostly. I live in Calgary, so I'm not only a Latin American, I'm also a Francophone. French is my second language. So I started, we started little educational projects within the Francophone community, which is already a minority in Alberta or the province where we are. And so sometimes they need a piano teacher, sometimes they need a guitar teacher, sometimes they need a person that will compose a musical adventure (laughs) that will reinforce the identity and the culture of a group. So that's what I do. I love to do that. So all the educational projects I do is almost volunteering. I volunteer a lot. And it's just a way to show how much we can do uh, with little, right? If we just volunteer and do something in any community we want, the difference will come eventually. I know that quality education is the best way we can help others. So they can have options and develop critical thinking about anything. I know that nobody can achieve anything through education and training, right? But when you see new talents, like natural talent, it is very inspiring. And it gives gives so much hope to our mission. So working with kids and young is very rewarding on that matter because they're the future. And if we start these educational projects, it can be just, you know, once a week, we do something, any place we want. So all, all the educational tools that we have, we have to use them. So it's not only about Baroque bassoon. I'm, as a Baroque bassoonist, I'm, I don't know what to do actually with the world. But with all the tools that I have from my critical thinking, 
and the things I learn, learning new languages in Baroque or anything, we can do so much more. In Calgary, the Francophone community, I can, next day, I can choose the Latin American community, any Latin American community that I, I feel connected and I will go and, and help. Right now is, is the Francophone community that I'm attached. The institution is very happy. And so we are trying to build something cool with it. How can we help others, no matter their language or not? We need to help. We need to try to just provide. Sometimes we want to receive information, like we will we'll go to school and then we want to just want to learn. I went to New York. I just wanted to learn. I, want, I wanted to receive. But right now I'm in a phase that I want to share. I want to give others. It can be for free. It can be, oh, eventually maybe I will find a, a nice job. I don't know. But I love to share everything and to adapt the knowledge that I have to any other situations. So that's what we're trying to do. Eventually, maybe they will see the difference between a classical guitar and a baroque guitar, right? And that will be part of their education, right? We don't want to create more musicians necessarily, but we want to just offer or create audiences for what we do, right? The best way to create audiences is to share knowledge in a generous way. Yeah. And I think creating audiences, especially in the 21st century, where live audience attendance keeps going down because everything's just online, especially after a global pandemic, we really do have to fight to create audiences and circles of audiences around our projects and also the organizations that we we work with to sustain live music and live performance going forward. Yes. It's so easy now for an ensemble to say, okay, we're going to rehearse and we're going to record a bunch of videos, very well-produced videos a studio or in a house with you know multiple cameras and microphones and everything and put it online and let the ensemble live almost exclusively online it kind of excludes the people who might not have access to internet at the touch of a button 24 hours a day and so if we want to reach everybody and we want to be able to perform live music for everybody we have to continue reaching out to people and showing them that live music is an important part of the human existence. Oh yes, I agree on that. I think also like cultivating these audiences can be a really great way to introduce people to composers or repertoire that they haven't been exposed to. Correct, correct. We need to understand why they listen to, why, and we need to do some analyze with them and then debate, but also enjoyment because sometimes their music is also very nice yeah so when we share and we uh, this is what i listen this is what you listen and what we have in common what is different but in a way of enjoyment we can enjoy the sharing connection that's that's more important and this is when we create a new audience anytime they will see me playing the baroque soon they will pay attention because we will we share things before and every time they will perform something uh, especially the young, the young people, they're amazing. And we pay attention to them. We just, it's part of the sharing and the connection. And I think also in the interest of sharing and creating new connections and expanding audiences and their their idea of what music 
should be. Um, you also created a foundation that promotes female empowerment and representation, specifically in early music. Can you tell us a little bit about your vision for, for this project, the Mount Parnassus Foundation? Obviously, there is a great need for, for such a project in the early music world. Okay, so I wanted to start the Mount Parnassus Foundation after my master's from Montreal, but it was during COVID times that I just accepted my destiny and I, I went for it. So I incorporated, I started a business, which is not a business, it's mostly a nonprofit. So we don't make any money, we spend money, right? <laughs> so the foundation wants to support women dedicated to historical performance practices. We want to start a music festival in Alberta, right? And with the same principles, empowerment, quality education, and diversity. At this point, we are just in the long process of creating new things. So we interview women dedicated to this art, and we try to share their own journey in the historical performance world. We want to connect these women. So in the future, we can create some kind of Baroque orchestra together. <laughs> so the foundation wants to create concert, a scholarship for women, a music festival, which is the main project, recording projects, as we will hear here, profile, history of life. We want to just collect information about why it's so important, why is this world so important for us. And it is a work that requires time, patience, and mostly vision. In every interaction, we should listen to the artist every time to see how they evolve, how they change, how they connect, to see if we can in fact become a real community of support. And why is that we need such a support? Because there are no jobs in early music. That's mostly a big problem that we have. We have talented people coming from these programs and we have no jobs. Those jobs need to be created. So we need support to understand first that no jobs immediately. So we need to help to each other. Why women? Because when we empower women, we help communities. A woman embraces everybody with no distinction. A woman really understands the definition of inclusion, sacrifice, and the need of diversity. To help a woman for me is to help a group of people. So I found a lot of generosity in women's heart. That doesn't mean that the foundation is just gonna be integrated by only women. No, it's quite the contrary. Because we help a woman, to help a woman is to help everybody. So we have different projects uh, coming, but everything is just in the very first phase. We want to focus on that one festival that will come hopefully next year. We found a community already that is very interested, but we have to work hard. It's not like just trying or just dreaming about it. We have to work. And this work takes a lot of time. In Canada, it's a different, different world from the ones I'm used to from the context I'm used to Latin America. So we need, we need to adapt the ideas. So we are on that phase and support is coming for us. And we need more projects like this. It's, Montparnasse is just one initiative, but we need like a hundred in the same place because we're pretty alone. I feel pretty alone in Alberta. We need to support each other uh, with any new initiative we can have. Well, I mean, that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with education. 
we shouldn't feel like foundations like this are the first or the third or even the fifth. It's it's 2022. Foundations like this should be all over and support for these kind of initiatives, not just in terms of diversity, but in terms of equity, of access and inclusion should be at the forefront of every arts organization at this point. And at the same, we go one woman after the other. And it takes time to help one person. It takes a lot of time to understand their conflict, their journey, and their what, what is that they're dreaming about. So some of my colleagues, I was just amazed that some of them are trying to listen to some, are, are waiting for somebody famous to listen to them. So they will they can go to some place and work in Versailles. I don't believe in that. I believe it is us that can help us. It's me helping Karim, it's me helping Thomas, it's me helping, it's my colleague from New York helping me. So it is continuous support as colleagues. We need to offer jobs to our colleagues. We need to be offered jobs as colleagues because we are the ones capable of changing things. If we want to change things, if I think only about myself, then it's, it's not interesting anymore. I can find a job, yes, somewhere, thinking about myself, but I won't change a community like that. So we need to think more global, the global situation and where we are. So if all the big cities like Montreal, New York, Vancouver, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, well, they have it, they don't have it all. Let's do something about it in the middle. <laughs> Let's do something something too in, you know, in those provinces that we don't have so much accessibility to high quality education. Let's bring things in another part of the world. It would be easier for me to stay just in New York and, and freelancing. I don't want that. What I'm doing, it takes longer, but it provides more changes. And changes is what we need right now because it's a must. And I think also the, the reward that comes with really fighting for something that you believe in and, and trying to really enact change on a personal level that then you see balloon out into influencing other people, I think that can be a much greater reward by far than I have this job, I go there every day, I sit in the chair, I play the same 100 pieces a year, Yeah, I take a few weeks off, I come back and do it again. You know, one of my my teachers fairly early on in my my journey as a, a period clarinetist um, said, you know, nobody gets rich doing this. <laughs> the, the goal is not to get rich doing this. If you want to get rich, do anything other than this. The goal is to open other people's eyes yes. and their ears and give them an idea of what the music can be and how important what we're doing as a community is. And I think mm -hmm. also an organization that specifically promotes female empowerment in the early music field is something that is incredibly worthwhile and so needed in this day and age where so many of the ensembles with the exception of maybe one or two uh, that I can think of off the top of my head are led by management that all look the same, that are very uh, 
male dominated and by artistic direction teams that are incredibly male dominated, not to also mention very uh, white. <laughs> We're, I'm trying to do things that will take longer. I realize we need to change things as they are. I miss Montreal very much. And I know my talent. I know what I'm capable of. I know what I, I can do, right? But I just want to help people that doesn't know. And, and when you help people, then you're helping yourself at the same time. Because again, there are no jobs. And it's not my goal to stay freelancing all my life. I can do it for a while, but I just want to be happy. And happiness is about bringing knowledge to the place, places that we can't find knowledge because you're in the middle of somewhere and you should have access. We all deserve access to excellence, no matter where we are from or where we come from or how much money we have, we all deserve access. And so I'm most interested on that, on giving access. And sometimes people say, well, Katarina, you need just, you, you sacrifice so much and you maybe you, you just don't give it all. I disagree. I will give it all every time somebody's asking for more information. Every time I give all I have, I receive the double, <laughs> you know? And happiness is rewarding. And so this is our destiny. In early music, I find myself, I know who I am, I know what I'm capable of. We need to help others. This is the only way I know. And generosity is the only way I know. It's the only way. Well, that, that's what we're all working toward, I think. <laughs> so now we're going to listen to an excerpt from the Mount Parnassus Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about the repertoire and the performers on this recording? Oh, so yes, this is a Handel Trio Sonata. Uh, I played this before and when I was in New York and in music festival as well. So I had mentors. So I have a connection with this piece. Uh, I love the piece. And so I, I invited Micah, then cat violinist, and Elliot Fig from New York. Micah is from Vancouver. Elliot is from New York. And Amanda, she's American, but she's, she came from Montreal to do this recording project. So it was a, a challenge to do it. Uh, we did it in, at the National Music Center in Calgary, and they have beautiful harpsichord there. Very nice instruments. I received some little support from the government of Alberta, so that was good. And so this is like the, a reference for, for ourselves. Invite people, do recording projects that will show some diversity. You will see a Latin American that is not dancing salsa, but playing handle. So that's what we want. That's what we want to show some of, of diversity with different people, Vancouver, New York, and Montreal, and me, myself, from Latin America. This is what I'm looking for, to show a language, this is handle language, trio sonata, a different perspective. We can put it together. We rehearse a lot together, and we receive the ideas. We share the ideas with generosity, and this is some of the results we have. I'm very proud of this recording, and that's what we want as a first reference. We want to invite more uh, women to 
come and, and, and do recording projects in, in Alberta or we go to Montreal, I don't know. But this is the first reference and we want to keep it there as a, as a reference. This is when we mix different cultures, different backgrounds and put it together in the same language. And sometimes we have different ideas, but the results are, are always very interesting. And so that's what we did uh, with this recording, the Trio Sonata, Hendo Trio Sonata. I think, I think that's re that's really great. It really shows that uh, music is a global language, which it should be, and of course, it very much is. Thank you so much for joining us today, Catalina. This has just been a treat. Thank you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. This was Now We Listen, a podcast celebrating traditionally underrepresented performers, scholars, and research topics in early music and historically informed performance. Please join us in our next episode, the Colonialization of Music in Theory and Practice, where music theory professor Philip Ewell joins us in a conversation about his own text, Music Theory and the White Racial Frame, and his upcoming monograph on music theory and making music more welcoming for everyone, available spring 2023 at the University of Michigan Press. Now We Listen is a project of Early Music Americas, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Access Task Force. Production, Karin Cuellar and Thomas Carroll. Audio Design, Engineering, and Editing, Joanna Joy Neuschatz. <laughs>